Chapter 65, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, Chapter 65, Part 1. Elevation of Timor or Tamerlane, to the throne of Samarkand, his conquests in Persia, Georgia, Tartary, Russia, India, Syria, and Anatolia, his Turkish war, defeat and captivity of Bajazet, death of Timur, civil war of the sons of Bajazet, restoration of the Turkish monarchy by Mohammed I, siege of Constantinople by Amurath II, the conquest and monarchy of the world was the first object of the ambition of Timur. To live in the memory and esteem of future ages was the second wish of his magnanimous spirit. All the civil and military transactions of his reign were diligently recorded in the journals of his secretaries. The authentic narrative was revised by the persons best informed of each particular transaction, and it is believed in the empire and family of Timur that the monarch himself composed the commentaries of his life and the institutions of his government. But these cares were ineffectual for the preservation of his fame, and these precious memorials in the Mughal or Persian language were concealed from the world, or at least from the knowledge of Europe. The nations which he vanquished exercised a base and impotent revenge, and ignorance has long repeated the tale of calumny, which has disfigured the birth and character, the person and even the name of Tamerlane. Yet his real merit would be enhanced, rather than debased, by the elevation of a peasant to the throne of Asia. Nor can lameness be a theme of reproach, unless he had the weakness to blush at a natural, or perhaps an honorable infirmity. In the eyes of the Mughals, who held the indefeasible secession of the house of Genghis, He was, doubtless, a rebel subject, yet he sprang from the noble tribe of Berlas. His fifth ancestor, Karashar Nevian, had been the vizier of Zagatai in his new realm of Transoxiana, and in the ascent of some generations the branch of Timur is confounded, at least by the females, with the imperial stem. He was born forty miles to the south of Samarkand, in the village of Sebzar, in the fruitful territory of Kash, of which his fathers were the hereditary chiefs, as well as of a toman of ten thousand horse. His birth was cast on one of those periods of anarchy which announced the fall of the Asiatic dynasties, and opened a new field to adventurous ambition. The Khans of Zagatai were extinct, the emirs aspired to independence, and their domestic feuds can only be suspended by the conquest and tyranny of the Khans of Kashgar, who, with an army of Getis, or Kalmuks, invaded the Transaxian kingdom. From the twelfth year of his age, Timur had entered the field of action. In the twenty-fifth, he stood forth as the deliverer of his country, and the eyes and wishes of the people were turned towards a hero who suffered in their cause. The chiefs of the law and of the army had pledged their salvation to support him with their lives and fortunes but in the hour of danger they were silent and afraid. 
and after waiting seven days on the hills of Samarcand, he retreated to the desert with only sixty horsemen. The fugitives were overtaken by a thousand Getes, whom he repulsed with incredible slaughter, and his enemies were forced to exclaim, Timor is a wonderful man, fortune and the divine favor are with him. But in this bloody action his own followers were reduced to ten, a number which was soon diminished by the desertions of three Charismians. He wandered in the desert with his wife, seven companions, and four horses, and sixty-two days was he plunged in a loathsome dungeon, from whence he escaped by his own courage and the remorse of the oppressor. After swimming the broad and rapid stream of the Jihun or Oxus, he led, during some months, the life of a vagrant and outlaw on the borders of the adjacent states. But his fame shone brighter in adversity. He learned to distinguish the friends of his person, the associates of his fortune, and to apply the various characters of men for their advantage, and above all, for his own. On his return to his native country, Timor was successively joined by the parties of his confederates, who anxiously sought him in the desert. Nor can I refuse to describe, in his pathetic simplicity, one of their fortunate encounters. He presented himself as a guide to three chiefs, who were at the head of seventy horse. When their eyes fell upon me, said Timor, they were overwhelmed with joy, and they alighted from their horses, and they came and kneeled, and they kissed my stirrup. I also came down from my horse, and took each of them in my arms, and I put my turban on the head of the first chief, and my girdle, rich in jewels and wrought with gold, I bound on the loins of the second, and the third I clothed in my own coat. And they wept, and I wept also, and the hour of prayer was arrived, and we prayed, and we mounted our horses and came to my dwelling, and I collected my people, and made a feast. His trusty bands were soon increased by the bravest of the tribes. He led them against a superior foe, and after some vicissitudes of war, the Getes were finally driven from the kingdom of Transoxiana. He had done much for his own glory, but much remained to be done, much art to be exerted, and some blood to be spilt, before he could teach his equals to obey him as their master. The birth and power of Amir Hussein compelled him to accept a vicious and unworthy colleague, whose sister was the best beloved of his wives. Their union was short and jealous, but the policy of Timur, in their frequent quarrels, exposed his rival to the reproach of injustice and perfidy, and, after a final defeat, Hussein was slain by some sagacious friends, who presumed, for the last time, to obey the commands of their lord. At the age of thirty-four, and in a general diet, or coral tie, he was invested with imperial command. But he affected to revere the house of Zingis, and while the emir Timur reigned over Zagatai and the east, a nominal khan served as a private officer in the armies of his servant. A fertile kingdom, five hundred miles in length and in breadth, might have satisfied the ambition of a subject. But Timur aspired to the dominion of the world, and before his death, the crown of Zagatai was one of the twenty-seven crowns which he had placed on his head. Without expiating on the victories of thirty-five campaigns, without describing the lines of march which he repeatedly traced over the continent of Asia 
I shall briefly represent his conquests in 1. Persia, 2. Tartary, and 3. India, and from thence proceeding to the more interesting narrative of his Ottoman War. 1. For every war, a motive of safety or revenge, of honor or zeal, of right or convenience, may be readily found in the jurisprudence of conquerors. No sooner had Timur reunited to the patrimony of Zagatai, the dependent countries of Karizme and Kandahar, than he turned his eyes towards the kingdoms of Iran or Persia. From the Oxus to the Tigris, that extensive country was left without a lawful sovereign after the death of Abu Said, the last of the descendants of the great Holakal. Peace and justice had been banished from the land above forty years, and the Mughal invader might seem to listen to the cries of an oppressed people. Their petty tyrants might have opposed him with confederate arms. They separately stood, and successively fell, and the difference of their fate was only marked by the promptitude of submission or the obstinacy of resistance. Ibrahim, prince of Shirwan, or Albania, kissed the footstool of the imperial throne. His peace offerings of silks, horses, and jewels were composed, according to the Tatar fashion, each article of nine pieces, but a critical spectator observed that there were only eight slaves. I myself am the ninth, replied Ibrahim, who was prepared for the remark, and his flattery was rewarded by the smile of Timur. Shah Mansur, prince of Fars, or the proper Persia, was one of the least powerful, but most dangerous of his enemies. In a battle under the walls of Shiraz, he broke, with three or four thousand soldiers, the Kul, or main body, of thirty thousand horse, where the emperor fought in person. No more than fourteen or fifteen guards remained near the standard of Timur. He stood firm as a rock, and received on his helmet two weighty strokes of a scimitar. The Mughals rallied, and the head of Mansur was thrown at his feet, and he declared his esteem of the valor of a foe by extirpating all the males of so intrepid a race. From Shiraz his troops advanced to the Persian Gulf, and the richness and weakness of Ormuz were displayed in an annual tribute of six hundred thousand dinars of gold. Baghdad was no longer the city of peace, the seat of the caliphs, but the noblest conquest of Hulakal, could not be overlooked by his ambitious successor. The whole course of the Tigris and Euphrates, from the mouth to the sources of those rivers, was reduced to his obedience. He entered Edessa, and the Turkmen's of the black sheep were chastised for the sacrilegious pillage of a caravan of Mecca. In the mountains of Georgia, the native Christians still braved the law and the sword of Mohammed. By three expeditions he obtained the merit of the Ghazi, or Holy War and the prince of Teflis became his proselyte and friend. 2. A just retaliation might be urged for the invasion of Turkestan, or the eastern Tartary. The dignity of Timur could not endure the impunity of the Getes. He passed the Sihun, subdued the kingdom of Kashgar, and marched seven times into the heart of their country. His most distant camp was two months' journey, or four hundred and eighty leagues to the northeast of Samarkand, and his emirs, who traversed the river Urtish, engraved in the forests of Siberia a rude memorial of their exploits. The conquest of Kipzak, or the western Tartary, 
was founded on the double motive of aiding the distressed and chastising the ungrateful. Koktamish, a fugitive prince, was entertained and protected in his court. The ambassadors of Arus Khan were dismissed with a haughty denial, and followed on the same day by the armies of Zagatai, and their success established Toktamish in the Mughal Empire of the North. But after a reign of ten years, the new Khan forgot the merits and the strength of his benefactor, the base usurper, as he deemed him, of the sacred rights of the house of Zingis. Through the gates of Derbend he entered Persia at the head of ninety thousand horse, with the innumerable forces of Kipzak, Bulgaria, Circassia, and Russia. He passed the Sahun, burnt the palaces of Timur, and compelled him, amidst the winter snows, to contend for Samarkand and his life. After a mild expostulation and a glorious victory, the emperor resolved on revenge, and by the east and the west, of the Caspian and the Volga, he twice invaded Kipzak with such mighty powers that thirteen miles were measured with his right to his left wing. In a march of five months they rarely beheld the footsteps of man, and their daily subsistence was often trusted to the fortune of the chase. At length the armies encountered each other, but the treachery of the standard-bearer, who, in the heat of action, reversed the imperial standard of Kipzak, determined the victory of the Zagatais, and Toktamish, I speak the language of the institutions, gave the tribe of Toshi to the wind of desolation. He fled to the Christian duke of Lithuania, again returned to the banks of the Volga, and after fifteen battles with a domestic rival, at last perished in the wilds of Siberia. The pursuit of a flying enemy carried Timur into the tributary provinces of Russia. A duke of the reigning family was made prisoner amidst the ruins of his capital, and Yelitz, by the pride and ignorance of the Orientals, might easily be confounded with the genuine metropolis of the nation. Moscow trembled at the approach of the Tartar, and the resistance would have been feeble, since the hopes of the Russians were placed in a miraculous image of the Virgin, to whose protection they ascribed the casual and voluntary retreat of the conqueror. Ambition and prudence recalled him to the south. The desolate country was exhausted, and the Mughal soldiers were enriched with an immense spoils of precious furs, of linen of Antioch, and of ingots of gold and silver. On the banks of the Don, or Tanais, he received a humble deputation from the consuls and merchants of Egypt, Venice, Genoa, Catalonia, and Biscay, who occupied the commerce and city of Tana, or Azov, at the mouth of the river. They offered their gifts, admired his magnificence, and trusted his royal word. But the peaceful visit of an emir, who explored the state of the magazines and harbor, was speedily followed by the destructive presence of the Tartars. The city was reduced to ashes, the Muslims were pillaged and dismissed, but all the Christians who had not fled to their ships were condemned either to death or slavery. Revenge prompted him to burn the cities of Sarai and Astrachan, monuments of rising civilization, and his vanity proclaimed that he had penetrated to the region of perpetual daylight, which authorized his Mohammedan doctors to dispense with the obligation of evening prayer. 3. When Timur first proposed to his princes and emirs the invasion of India, or Hindustan, he was answered by a murmur of discontent. The rivers, and the mountains, and deserts, and the soldiers clad in armor, 
and the elephants, destroyers of men. But the displeasure of the emperor was more dreadful than all those terrors, and his superior reason was convinced that an enterprise of such tremendous aspect was safe and easy in the execution. He was informed by his spies of the weakness and anarchy of Hindustan. The Subas of the provinces had erected the standard of rebellion, and the perpetual infancy of Sultan Mahmud was despised even in the harem of Delhi. The Mughal army moved in three great divisions, and Timur observes with pleasure that the ninety-two squadrons of a thousand horse most fortunately corresponded to the ninety-two names or epithets of the prophet Mohammed. Between the Jijun and the Indus, they crossed one of the ridges of the mountains which are styled by the Arabian geographers the stony girdles of the earth. The highland robbers were subdued or extirpated, but great numbers of men and horses perished in the snow. The emperor himself was let down a precipice on a portable scaffold. The ropes were one hundred and fifty cubits in length, and before he could reach the bottom, this dangerous operation was five times repeated. Timur crossed the Indus at the ordinary passage of Atok, and successively traversed in the footsteps of Alexander the Punjab, or five rivers, that fall into the master stream. From Atok to Delhi, the high road measures no more than six hundred miles, but the two conquerors deviated to the southeast, and the motive of Timur was to join his grandson, who had achieved by his command the conquest of Multan. On the eastern bank of the Hyphasis, on the edge of the desert, the Macedonian hero halted and wept. The Mogul entered the desert, reduced the fortress of Batnir, and stood in arms before the gates of Delhi, a great and flourishing city which had subsisted three centuries under the dominion of the Mohammedan kings. The siege, more especially of the castle, might have been a work of time, but he tempted, by the appearance of weakness, the Sultan Mahmud and his vizier to descend into the plain, with ten thousand cuirassiers, forty thousand of his foot guards, and one hundred and twenty elephants, whose tusks are said to have been armed with sharp and poisoned daggers. Against these monsters, or rather, against the imagination of his troops, he condescended to use some extraordinary precautions of fire and ditch, of iron spikes and a rampart of bucklers. But the event taught the moguls to smile at their own fears, and as soon as these unwieldy animals were routed, the inferior species, the men of India, disappeared from the field. Timur made his triumphal entry into the capital of Hindustan, and admire, with a view to imitate, the architecture of the stately mosque. But the order or license of a general pillage and massacre polluted the festival of his victory. He resolved to purify his soldiers in the blood of the idolaters, or gentus, who still surpass, in the proportion of ten to one, the number of the Moslems. In this pious design he advanced one hundred miles to the northeast of Delhi, passed the Ganges, fought several battles by land and water, and penetrated to the famous rock of Kupele, the statue of the cow that seems to discharge the mighty river, whose source is far distant among the mountains of Tibet. His return was along the skirts of the northern hills. Nor could this rapid campaign of one year justify the strange foresight of his emirs that their children in a warm climate would degenerate into a race of Hindus. It was on the banks of the Ganges that Timur was informed, by his speedy messengers, of the disturbances which had arisen on the confines of Georgia and Anatolia, 
of the revolt of the Christians, and the ambitious designs of the Sultan Bajazet. His vigor of mind and body was not impaired by sixty-three years and innumerable fatigues, and after enjoying some tranquil months in the palace of Samarkand, he proclaimed a new expedition of seven years into the western countries of Asia. To the soldiers who had served in the Indian War, he granted the choice of remaining at home or following their prince. But the troops of all the provinces and kingdoms of Persia were commanded to assemble at Ipsfahan and await the arrival of the imperial standard. It was first directed against the Christians of Georgia, who were strong only in their rocks, their castles, and the winter season. But these obstacles were overcome by the zeal and perseverance of Timur. The rebels submitted to the tribute of the Koran, and if both religions boasted of their martyrs, that name is more justly due to the Christian prisoners, who were offered the choice of abjuration or death. On his descent from the hills, the emperor gave audience to the first ambassadors of Bajazet, and opened the hostile correspondence of complaints and menaces, which fermented two years before the final explosion. Between the two jealous and haughty neighbors, the motives of quarrel will seldom be wanting. The Mughal and Ottoman conquests now touched each other in the neighborhood of Erzurum and the Euphrates, nor had the doubtful limit been ascertained by time and treaty. Each of these ambitious monarchs might accuse his rival of violating his territory, of threatening his vassals, and protecting his rebels. And in the name of rebels, each understood the fugitive princes whose kingdoms he had usurped, and whose life and liberty he implacably pursued. The resemblance of character was still more dangerous than the opposition of interest, and in their victorious career, Timur was impatient of an equal, and Bajazet was ignorant of a superior. The first epistle of the Mughal emperor must have provoked, instead of reconciling, the Turkish sultan, whose family and nation he affected to despise. Dost thou not know that the greatest part of Asia is subject to our arms and our laws? that our invincible forces extend from one sea to the other, and that the potentates of the earth form a line before our gate, and that we have compelled fortune herself to watch over the prosperity of our empire. What is the foundation of thy insolence and folly? Thou hast fought some battles in the woods of Anatolia, and contemptible trophies. Thou hast obtained some victories over the Christians of Europe. Thy sword was blessed by the apostle of God, and thy obedience to the precept of the Koran, in waging war against the infidels, is the sole consideration that prevents us from destroying thy country, the frontier and bulwark of the Muslim world. Be wise in time, reflect, repent, and avert the thunder of our vengeance, which is yet suspended over thy head. Thou art no more than a pismire. Why wilt thou seek to provoke the elephants? Alas, they will trample thee under their feet. In his replies, Bajazet poured forth the indignation of a soul which was deeply stung by such unusual contempt. After retorting the basest reproaches of the thief and rebel of the desert, the Ottoman recapitulates his boasted victories in Iran, Turan, and the Indies, and labors to prove that Timur had never triumphed unless by his own perfidy and the vices of his foes. Thy armies are innumerable, be they so, but what are the arrows of the flying Tartar against the scimitars and battle-axes of my firm and invincible Janizaries? 
I will guard the princes who have implored my protection. Seek them in my tents. The cities of Arzingan and Ezerom are mine, and unless the tribute be duly paid, I will demand the arrears under the walls of Taurus and Sultiana. The ungovernable rage of the sultan at length betrayed him to an insult of a more domestic kind. If I fly from thy arms, said he, may my wives be thrice divorced from my bed. But if thou hast not the courage to meet me in the field, mayest thou again receive thy wives after they have thrice endured the embraces of a stranger. Any violation by word or deed of the secrecy of the harem is an impardonable offense among the Turkish nations, and the political quarrel of the two monarchs was embittered by private and personal resentment. Yet, in his first expedition, Timur was satisfied with the siege and destruction of Suvas, or Sebaste, a strong city on the borders of Anatolia, and he revenged the indiscretion of the Ottoman on a garrison of four thousand Armenians, who were buried alive for the brave and faithful discharge of their duty. As a Mussulman, he seemed to respect the pious occupation of Bajazet, who was still engaged in a blockade of Constantinople, and after the salutary lesson, the Mughal conqueror checked his pursuit and turned aside to the invasion of Syria and Egypt. In these transactions, the Ottoman prince, by the Orientals and even by Timur, is styled the Caesar of Rome, the Caesar of the Romans, a title which, by a small anticipation, might be given to a monarch who possessed the provinces and threatened the city of the successors of Constantine. End of chapter 65 Part 1